This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. You're listening to Knowledge at Wharton on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Here again is Dan Loney. Welcome back. Hour number two of Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 111. Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Thanks very much for spending part of your day with us. We have seen years of job growth since the recession, yet wages continue to be sluggish. In the latest jobs report, unemployment went down to 3.9%, with the rate including marginally attached workers at 7.8%, the lowest since 2001. But wage growth was at a 2.6% annualized rate, and that number is pre-inflation. It has many people wondering what needs to occur so that Americans can see their pay increases and stay above the rate of inflation. Peter Capelli is a professor of management here at the Wharton School. He is also a director of the Center for Human Resources. He joins us on the phone to discuss this, as well as Harry Holzer, who is a professor in the School of Public Policy at Georgetown University. And Harry was also the chief economist during the Clinton administration. Peter, it's always great to talk with you. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Dan. Thank you. And Harry, great to have you with us as well. Uh, thank you. Good to be here. Thank you. Uh, so, uh, Peter, g- give us your thoughts in-, in terms of why we are seeing this kind of stagnant wage growth. Uh, well, it's uh, first of all, it's not such a new thing. This has been going on for about a generation, and um, it's always a-, a tricky thing to try to figure out how much of what we're experiencing is the result of a business cycle. You know, we're coming off the worst recession since the Great Depression. By some estimates, the economy was about 10% smaller than it would have been if we hadn't had the Great Recession. So how much of it is just that? And how much of it is uh, that there is something about the structure of the economy that's different? Um, And I think there's something of both going on. You know, I don't think the labor market is as tight as that 3.9% would suggest. Right. Um, but I think there's also something about the structure, and it's basically the way employers think about employees now and the great reluctance to uh, raise wages, which is driven sometimes by internal accounting and some terms in, in uh, public companies by what they think the investors think. Harry, your thoughts? Um, I, I, I largely agree with, with the way Peter has summarized it. Um, I, He's right that at 3.9%, it might not be quite as tight uh, as we often think because a lot of people left the labor force during the recession, and they've been slowly trickling back in. Uh, so when you count that slow trickle, uh, you, you have a little more than, than 3.9% uh, going on. There's also a demographic change that complicates the picture. Uh, you have more baby boomers retiring than usual. Uh, they're being replaced at the low end, either by, by immigrants or, or, or young people or people reentering uh, with much lower wages. So that's, that they bring down the average because the baby boomers on average are, are higher wage people leaving. So you have some measurement issues going on uh, that, that are taking a little bit of the wind out of the sails. But, but there are these structural problems. Um, I think a lot about worker skills. You know, and, and by the way, uh, it's very hard to have wage growth without productivity growth. Right. Uh, and productivity growth has been pretty lousy. Uh, so, so that may be the underlying structural problem that, that's causing us the most, uh, the most grief here. I think part of that is about worker skills. 
U.S. worker skills uh, are not what they ought to be uh, to, to really raise productivity growth. And then there are these behaviors of employers uh, that are often not helpful either, turning a lot of their workers into independent contractors, finding other reasons not to invest in them. So, so, so uh, I, I think there's a few measurement issues going on, but, but there are these structural challenges that, that drive the problem. Is it a correctable thing uh, in your mind, or is this to a degree a new norm, Harry? You know, uh, productivity is really hard to change by policy. Yeah, uh, it moves. It often moves very slowly. Uh, when it does move, sometimes it doesn't even seem to be related to policy. Uh, it, we would have to do a lot, I, I think, to really start uh, improving people's educational attainment uh, um, and 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 to change firm behavior it is even more difficult. Uh, so, so it's not impossible. Uh, and, and I think I have been advocating for certain reforms that I think would would raise educational attainment and especially the skills that are relevant for the economy. But, but there are no quick fixes here. What, what specifically would you like to see changed? Um, I would like to see, uh, you know, at the sub-BA level, uh, I would like to see more emphasis on uh, people getting skills that are actually rewarded by the economy. Uh, we have very low completion rates at our community colleges. When people finish things, it's often – AAs in, in liberal studies or, yep. or general humanities that, that do nothing for the labor market and aren't valued. So I, 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 think, I think those institutions need more resources. I think they need a, a stronger set of incentives to be uh, relevant to the labor market. Um, uh, and, 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 of course, I think we need to boost our apprenticeship programs and sector-based training and all those things, which do seem to have positive effects on, on productivity on, and on worker earnings. Peter, same mindset? Uh, no, I, I don't think so. Um, I think uh, the big change that is is part of this bigger puzzle is that the share of the U.S. economy, the share of GNP going to employees overall, has been declining, uh, and it's been declining for some time. And there's something funnier going on in the economy that's that doesn't have to do with worker education levels. Uh, which are not down, by the way. They're not declining. Uh, they've actually been increasing over time. So uh, that's a hard one to explain. Why is it that the overall share of income in the economy to workers is going down, the share going to capital to profits has gone up, and this has been going on for a while. And I think this goes back partly to what Harry was saying uh, before about employer uh, practices, and some of it has to do with outsourcing, for example, you know, trying to find the cheapest way to get work done. I think employers are really resisting uh, doing anything that would raise wages. Uh, and I think uh, it's not clear why that that's such a smart thing to do, because I think in lots of cases, you know, you pay peanuts, you get monkeys. Uh, and I think part of the problem, though, inside the companies, which I think this is why I think this has to do with internal accounting, uh, issues is the companies are really focused on labor costs, wage costs, rather, as opposed to performance, right? So if you pay somebody more and you got better quality workers, you know, they were more productive, that should be saving you money. Part of the problem is they don't measure that well, partly because they don't try. So we know the cost, but we don't know the value. So, you know, the investment community screams at companies when they're raising wages. Um, they've always hated companies like Costco that they believe pay more than the market rate. 
Uh, and then on the policy side, you know, we have for a long time been making policy decisions that just nibble away at uh, worker bargaining power. Uh, certainly this is true for unions, but it's true on all kinds of different measures. Uh, we see it, you know, frankly, with respect to things like the H-1B visa program, which doesn't bring in the best and the brightest, but in the IT world brings in kind of average workers who are coming from countries where wages are much lower. You can't fire these folks. You know, they don't complain. And so I think it's, it's there's something going on across the board, and I think we can trace it back to changes in politics and changes in the view of the role of labor in the economy that starts in the 1980s and has more or less uh, just accelerated. And I think I agree with Harry on that one. It's a very difficult thing to change. I don't think a more educated workforce is going to raise wages um, because it's a supply and demand thing. And I don't see that that's... uh, that that's what's driving the problem right now. So well, it, I, I, go ahead, I, I think Peter dramatically undersells the role of education in our labor market. Every statistical analysis shows a large return to education. And when half of the American workers don't have any post-secondary education at all, that has to be part, part of the story. Uh, every analysis that's ever been done shows that education is important for productivity over time. Education is very important for earnings. Uh, so, so if we could somehow raise the overall educational attainment of workers, and especially in the areas that, that the market rewards, there's no question that, that would improve their earnings. There's just no well, doubt Dan, about that by anyone who's looked closely okay. at the data. Peter? So, Dan, let me disagree with Harry on this. Harry's committing something in logic, which is known as a fallacy of composition. And that means that if you look, for example, at doctors, doctors have more money, make more money. If everybody became a doctor, everybody would make more money. That's no, Peter, argument. that's a very extreme example. That's a, you know, you're way off. Well, it is. That. It sorry. is exactly. I know, I know no, labor, no serious labor economist who agrees with what Peter's just saying. I'll just put it that way. <laughs> okay. Well, I, I think they all agree with a fallacy of composition. And the idea that if you produce lots more engineers, that doesn't raise the wages of engineers. We're not even close to saturating the market in those occupations. You're painting an extreme scenario, Peter. It's incorrect. Well, wages are not going up in those, Harry. We're not seeing exploding wages for college graduates. The differences remain very, very high between people with those levels of education and people without it. Uh, and, and so if, if, you, if you had a moderate increase in the supply of people with the relevant skills, there is no question that their earnings would rise. We'd be nowhere near saturating those markets. And, and, and well, that's a different so question. See, Harry's referring back to the fallacy of composition story. There is no doubt that if you had more people with a college degree, those more people would, rate, would make more money than if they did not have a college degree. The question is, if you took a whole bunch of people – you know, change the percentage of students in the United States with high school degrees, and you had 20% more college graduates. Do we think the average return for college graduates would grow up? Go up? And I don't think the answer to that is true. No, but 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 the people moving from high school to a college degree would earn vastly more, and overall earnings of Americans would rise. And and well, the here's a simple question for well, hold on, hold on, Peter. Let let Harry finish yeah. that up, and then okay. you can have your turn. Uh, no, Peter's incorrect. If you had a, that kind of a moderate increase in the amount of education, yes, the earnings gap between high school and college would modestly decline. But 
the vast majority of those workers would, would have higher earnings, those, and, and overall earnings would be higher. This fallacy of composition argument uh, is phony. It's simply not true. Peter? Well, here's, you know, so here's the question for Harry. If you created more liberal arts, job, liberal arts graduates, let's say you create more uh, art school graduates, do we create more art school jobs for those people? The answer is no, right? So there has to be a job already for these folks. And in order for that to be true, we have to think that somehow employers have lots of jobs for college graduates that they are not filling, uh, and they're filling them right now with high school graduates, but if they only had a college graduate who could do that job, then suddenly they would hire these guys and they would pay them a lot more. No, that, that's, I don't that's, see that's, that incorrect. that's an incorrect. There, there, it's, it's not as though demand is frozen and supply is just trying to fill it. There is an interaction between supply and demand, and, and there are many sectors of the economy right now uh, that are very tight, and employers are finding it very hard to fill those jobs. And if you had a larger supply of people with the relevant skills, uh, more of those jobs would be filled. Employers wouldn't have to find other ways to get that work done. Uh, this is how the market works. So, you know, uh, in, in eras when skills go up, the labor market does just fine. Let me, let me people get jobs and productivity rises as well. Let, let me, and we're listening, uh, you're listening to Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 111 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, on the phone with uh, Peter, P- Peter Capelli of the Wharton School and Harry Holzer of Georgetown University. Let, let me ask this to both of you, and, and uh, Peter, I'll start with you. Obviously, there. We, we see the Labor Department numbers when they come out every month, but there are also the, jo- the jobs reports in terms of numbers of jobs that are actually out there that are available to be filled. And those numbers seemingly are still well in the, in the millions. And I, I guess there's an expectation that they would always be a, a relatively high number. So if we have that number being that high, how do we work to try and – we're never going to eliminate that number because you, you want that, that turnover. But how do you do something different to be able to, to make that connection to reduce that number to a, degree, to a degree? Well, I think this is something, one thing maybe Harry and I agree on, is that there are always vacancies in the economy. So when right. you look at that data, uh, what you're getting is a snapshot. So if we have somebody retired today... Uh, we don't fill that job tomorrow. Right. We post a notice. We go look for people. There's a period where we're interviewing. And in that period there, those those jobs remain vacant, and that's what you're seeing. So the fact that there are jobs vacant in the economy doesn't mean we can't fill them. I don't, I don't see any evidence uh, of that. And the fact that wages are not going up is a sign that employers are not really having so much difficulty filling those jobs. I think the other thing is worth thinking about here is when employers are looking to fill jobs, certainly the ones I talk to, they're never talking about filling jobs from people who are unemployed. They want to hire people who are already working someplace else. And this is one of the quirky things about trying to do something for the unemployed people and also for new college graduates. The complaint uh, that I see in the data from surveys of employers, they're not complaining about finding people even out of college it's not the complaint about college education it's the complaint about not having work experience so and practical job skills and that is where apprenticeships are a very important thing and the idea that we need more opportunities i don't think for people to get college degrees i think we need more opportunities for people to get work experience and job experience and 
that does look like apprenticeship programs. Now, why we don't have those is another interesting question. Um, and it does have something to do with employers and the employer side of this. Uh, you know, the unions that used to provide these are more or less been gutted. Yep. And, you know, we have to think about how to get employers into the game. It's very difficult for people to learn to be a plumber in a classroom, right? So I think the vacancy data is kind of a misnomer. It's not really a sign that we can't fill these jobs or that they're actually standing vacant. Uh, but the issue, I think the, the big thing is this question of how are people going to get job skills and training. Employers are not so inclined to do that anymore. The apprenticeship programs are gone. It seems to me that's the real hang-up. It's hard to do that stuff in co- a college classroom. Right. Well, so let me, I agree with vacancies always exist. But, in fact, there's many more of them when the labor market tightens up. And, and the ratio of vacant jobs to unemployed workers is, in fact, much higher uh, at this stage of the business cycle than it was before. Um, labor markets are fairly tight. Uh, and wages, in fact, are going up somewhat, not as much as we would like to, uh, as much as they can, given the productivity constraints. And as I said earlier, there is this measurement problem. If you look at workers continually in the labor market, they're actually experiencing quite strong wage growth. Uh, part of the difficulty, you know, as Peter said, it's harder for unemployed workers coming in. Uh, as I said, the retiring baby boomers also lower the average. Uh, but the labor market is moderately or relatively tight right now. Uh, it, it, and so, so we are getting some wage growth out of that. I think the vacancy numbers do have some meaning, uh, and they have risen. Again, the problem is in, in a very low productivity economy, there's limits to how far you can go uh, and, and some of the other pressures uh, on wages that, that Peter mentioned before. Um, that's really the issue. But, but the vacancies do have some information, and they t- do tell us that the labor market is, in fact, moderately tight. So if yeah, I, I agree uh, with yeah, that. But, Dan, can I just add one yep. more point to disagree with Harry so we'll complete the trifecta here? I don't think wage growth necessarily has to rely on productivity growth. And the reason for that is back to this earlier point about the share of the economy that has shifted from labor to capital, from employees to um, – to the owners and to shareholders, and some of that is uh, could be distributed back the other way. And if the labor market gets really tight and an employer really needs people, even if they don't have productivity growth in their company, they can pay for it. Yeah, right? there's, there are ways there's some in which truth to that. There's some truth to that, but historically it's much harder to do without productivity, and, and reversing that trend of, of earnings going to capital instead of labor, uh, it, it's, it's not a well-understood trend. I mean, if you think we need unions to bring it back, unfortunately, unions have been in decline for 65 years. Yeah. Uh, there is no easy way to, to reverse that process. But Productivity it, growth makes it a lot easier. But it is, Harry, the, the, the mindset of, of the companies that seemingly ha- has, has changed over the last, let's say, 20 or 30 years, when you say, obviously, you know, the numbers of people that are in unions are, are on the decline. It's also the mindset uh, of the pension system, obviously, being much different. And instead of, of really it being the company that is saying, we'll take care of you in terms of your retirement, now it's been shifted a lot to 401ks, 403bs, where they're saying, okay, listen, we'll get you started and we'll contribute, but in terms of you having that wealth for your retirement, it's on you now. No, that's true. There there has been a big shift, and and a lot of the risk uh, in the labor market has been shifting from capital labor. Uh, I don't think that's just mindset. I I think labor market trends uh, uh, have driven 
some of those changes. I, I, um, there are many ways in, in, in which workers, which employers have market power, uh, and they use that market power. And I, and I think technology and globalization uh, have added to their, to their market powers. Uh, they have other places to go if costs get too high. Uh, that has also limited the ability of unions to thrive. So, so there, there's a lot of forces, some economic, some political, uh, driving all this uh, all, all together, uh, reducing worker compensation over time in ways that, that none of us like. So is there a, is there a path to seeing uh, a, a higher wage growth rate in, in your mind? Harry, I'll start with you and then follow up with Peter. Well, you know, th- there are some things you could do. Uh, I-, I-, I think, for instance, you know, moderate increases in the minimum wage uh, help certainly help people in that bottom 10 to 20 percent. Uh, I-, I think we do that. I, I oppose 15, but-, but I think more moderate increases make sense. Um, there are other regulatory things you could do uh, to help workers, uh, you know, the employer employer use of these non-compete agreements, these non-disclosure agreements that really hurt workers uh, can be reined in. Uh, but I happen to think skills remain the biggest issue. Uh, and, and there are policies that won't work today or tomorrow, uh, but over the longer term could could improve workers' skills. Uh, you know, again, at community colleges, uh, in terms of apprenticeships, and I think altogether uh, those things over time would help the most. Peter? Uh, well, just the, the point of disagreement is, uh, is again, I don't think the shortage of skills is the issue. You look at people who have the same level of skills that they had before, like machinists, and the wages for those folks over the last generation have fallen quite sharply. So I don't think it's just that. I do think skills matter. Uh, I don't think education in the formal sense is what employers are complaining about. But I think this broader question is ultimately kind of political. You know, the uh, Warren Buffett phrase that there's class warfare in this country and our class is winning or my class is winning. Uh, you know, this is sort of systematic across the board. Um, I think on behalf of the investment community, uh, which pushes a lot of employer behavior, um, but employer decisions at the margin. If I'm an employer, how should I think about this decision I'm about to make? For example, should I retrain my employees or should I lay them off and try to hire some folks on the outside? I think some of this gets better, frankly, just with better internal accounting on the part of uh, employers where they could actually figure out, is a better paid, better skilled employee really worth it? Uh, how much more is that worth to me? At the moment, I don't know the answer to that question, so I just go with the analysts who want me to pay people as little as possible. So I do think that some of this has to do with mindset. Uh, and the mindset, I think, starts with uh, the employer side in the sense, you know, is labor just like a widget? Is labor just another factor of production? And I think most of us uh, think that that's not the case, that you should think about labor differently than just another factor of production. And that is a mindset change. And, you know, it might be hard to pull off, but we, we moved in the other direction over the last 20 years, certainly possible to move back. Harry? No, you know, I, Peter's completely dismissing market forces. Uh, uh, technology and globalization have had enormous effects 
on, on how much we reward people working on assembly lines and, and, and uh, other categories of work, clerical work that's been wiped out. Uh, so, so, again, I, I know of no serious economist who would put as little weight on markets uh, as Peter do, but maybe that's the difference between the economics point of view uh, and, and a sort of an HR business school point of view. Well, then then let's let's touch on this for a second, Harry, because obviously one of the stories that uh, is constantly being told right now is what we are going to be looking at in our labor force in, in the next 10 to 20 years, especially as uh, you know technology increases its performance and increases its presence in, in the labor market. You know, that, that's, that's a big concern. Uh, it's one we don't really have a big handle on right now. Uh, but, but, but I will say this. Um, historically, there have been many times when people have feared that automation would sort of lead, sort of wipe out jobs at a massive scale. The Luddites were the first to fear that, and there have been other times as well. Growing economies, if automation actually raises our productivity and raises the country's wealth, People will have more money to spend. New jobs will open up. People will have to – there will be some dislocations, and people will have right. to invest in obtaining new skills that are relevant for these new jobs. But, but I don't believe the stories of, of massive unemployment are, are arising from automation. Uh, it, it will be a more disrupted labor market, and we'll have to give people more opportunities for lifelong education, lifelong training. Uh, and, and that's challenging. Uh, uh, but 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 I don't I don't have this view that that automation will will make us all unemployed. Peter, yeah, no, I agree with that. I, I think that the the stories about what IT will do, and particularly artificial intelligence, are just guessing at this point. You know, the IT artificial intelligence scholars say we're probably twenty five years away from that. And one thing we do know about technology when it comes in is that it's quite difficult to predict what the effects will be on skills. And again, there are employer choices. So if you look, for example, like CAD-CAM, when it was introduced in manufacturing, there were some companies that laid off their machinists and hired engineers, but right. there are others that retrained their engineers, I mean, their, their machinists, to do the same work. Uh, I think the, you know, the technology has, <laughs> one more point of disagreeing with Harry here, uh, is technology, has it been a big factor in shrinking the wages of workers and displacing them. Well, uh, this is where we have a bind with the fact that productivity growth has not been growing. Um, and if we had a lot of technological change that was displacing a lot of workers in the past or recent past, you know, we would have seen productivity growth jumping up and have this opportunity for wage increases that Harry's talking about. But we really haven't seen that. Right. Uh, and I think on the just one more point, on the globalization thing, there's certainly parts of the U.S. economy where that's a big deal. There are other parts where it is not. I'm actually standing in a Walmart parking lot right now, and let me tell you, globalization has had no effect on the Walmart uh, employees. big chunk of the U.S. economy is not exposed to foreign competition, and that's most of the service sector. And the fact that wages for those folks have crumbled, uh, and they were never very high to begin with, has got to be due to something else. So, yeah. you know, it is, no, that, I don't think it's That's just also market. incorrect. That, that, that's incorrect. Global oh, supply chains have a big effect on what happens at Walmart. Not uh, the retail workers, Technology enables Harry. those global they, supply they don't chains. Outsource, that, that's, that's another They don't, that's another they don't outsource point. Walmart employees to China. Walmart employees are not in competition with Chinese workers. No, but the overall not. retail sector, their wages are brought down right. because those workers often compete with other kinds of workers, like former clerical workers that have been affected by technology. You can't segment off 
different parts of the economy and looked at them in isolation. They're all part of a fluid labor market uh, where interactions of technology and globalization do matter. Gentlemen, thanks very much for your time. Greatly appreciate the both. Great discussion. Many thanks to Peter Capelli of the Wharton School, Harry Holzer of Georgetown University. We will take a break. Our final 30 coming up in just a minute. Sirius XM 111 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. 